Hello. Um, we're glad you came tonight. Let me get my things here. I had to make myself notes because things were added that I needed to say tonight as I was listen, as I was singing. I was like, first off, um, uh, Marsha came up and whispered in my ear. And she said, I don't have the exact number, but over $6,000 came this morning for Annie Armstrong. <laughs> That's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's wonderful. Great. And then Mary grabbed me and said, hey. And I said, yes. And she said, Lisa um, was involved with Prop 8 out in California. That was the, uh, the definition of marriage between one man and one woman that has since been overturned um, by, the, by the judicial system. Um, that's supposed to be non-partial uh, out in California. And anyway, but what has happened, the judge has released names and addresses to those who, who, were, who supported Prop 8. And that information is now public, and Lisa's fearing for her safety. And so we certainly want to pray. And that is right up the line with uh, what's happening in America. That kind of goes with what I was saying um, this morning. And then um, in Deacon's meeting, one of our deacons spoke up and was talking about the universities, just how incredibly anti-God they are. And, you know, those of you who seen God Isn't Dead, um, you know, you probably already see that in that. But you don't have to go to a movie to see that. It's just a fact. Uh, I love what, one of the things Andy Stanley says that I, I really appreciate it. And I think I, t- I did it exactly right in Deacon's meeting, but he was talking just in general. He said, some of you have drifted so far away from God because 20 years ago, some professor told you that there wasn't a God. And now he is older, he's matured, and he is now a believer in Jesus Christ, and your mind's still messed up. So, so we've got to pray for our universities, uh, pray for the collegiate ministries there. That, that God will be big in our universities. Um, I wrote down uh, 70% of the kids who leave our Baptist churches who go to these universities, 70% of them walk away from church for at least a year or longer. And some of them never come back. 70%. So we have a huge challenge to um, prepare our kids for what they're going to face in college. And by the way, just tell them Jesus loves you probably won't cut it. We need to teach them apologetics and things like that so they can defend their faith. Um, on the day that we're doing um, graduation emphasis, I'm going to preach a message that, that I've heard Andy Stanley preach, but it's my message called Unfollow. And the importance of, of teaching kids, before you say you're going to unfollow Jesus, you know, what's the alternative? What's the alternative? So that's going to be on May the 6th. Um, and then, uh, heading on down into it, I, I can't read my own writing. Isn't that terrible? Okay, very good. Okay, now we're to the sermon introduction. Wasn't that smooth? Talking about great transition. <laughs> Wasn't that a smooth transition? Um, go ahead and take your Bibles tonight and turn to Matthew chapter 19, verse uh, 16 through 30 tonight. If we make all the way through it, we should. Uh, but no problem there. But I want to, it really is, a, I think, a pretty nice tie-in to what we talked about this morning. In fact, some of the things I just said were very nice tie-in and were side notes to what we talked about this morning. You know, again... Have you ever wondered why God does not give more people um, more success and more wealth? And I heard a pastor say this a long time ago, and I really honestly believe it's true. And that is this. The average person, and certainly this includes pastors, but the average person handles failure much better than they do success. Think about that. The average person handles failure much more than we do success. I mean, you know, back in Deuteronomy, when, when Moses was talking to the, the children of Israel before they go into the land, he said, listen, you're going to go in there and you're going to live in these big, fine cities. You're going to have these great houses. You have all these lands and stuff. And you're going to be tempted. It's going to happen. You say, by my hand and by my wealth, I have attained all this. And just remember that God did it. You didn't do it. God did it. 
And so the reason probably God gives us failure sometimes is to remind us that we need him. We need to depend on him because there's a great danger that when we're successful over and over again, we start thinking more about ourselves than we should. We get high-minded. We get haughty. We get arrogant. We get prideful. And those are very, very bad things to bring into our lives. And then secondly, this, um, the same statement was made by the same pastor, is that, that most people handle poverty more than they do wealth. And the reason, and he said this way, the reason that more of us don't have wealth is because God knows we can't handle it. And there's a lot of truth to that. You talk to, you talk, now if you, were, if you were raised in a wealthy family and you've had you know, access to wealth, you probably do better than a person who all of a sudden acquires wealth. They get a business idea, it takes off, and all of a sudden you're walking in money. And I, and what I have seen personally people uh, who, as they amass wealth, they depend less and less on God, and they get more and more stingy. Um, you were talking about, you know, the percentage of people who give has dropped down to two point something percent believers, and they're giving. And again, it's amazing; it's a proven fact that the wealthier you are, the smaller your percentage giving. Now, you may give more dollars, but the biggest giving group, okay, is the lower to middle class people. They give a higher percentage of their income. Then the wealthier people do. And the more wealth we have, percentagely, it's just, it goes down and down and down and down. I still love the story about Bill Gates. You know, when Bill Gates announced he was going to give a billion dollars away, everybody went, wow, can you believe it? He's given a billion dollars away. He, at that time, he had $42 billion. You couldn't spend it all if you tried. I'm going to tell you something. I don't think God even gave him a glance. I don't think God even cared. But now you let a widow lady who's on, on $800 a month Social Security, and she faithfully gives her $80. Jesus, matter of fact, Jesus tells that story. He'd go, now that's giving accounts right there. When a person's willing to give out of their, out of their, out of their need, out of their sacrifice, that really is giving that gets God's attention. So, so wealth can be, really can be a curse. I think, I think probably uh, a lot of people will tell you that, and we're going to see the story tonight, it's a real hard thing when you're wealthy to really trust God. You just have a tendency to trust in your wealth. So this is a familiar story that I want to share with you tonight and tag on that last thought. Now, here's a thought from this morning. There are two things you didn't get this morning that I didn't include. I like One I want to throw in, and hopefully you all remind me at the end, I want to tag in another one. The first is just a quote from one of the commentaries that I thought was very good. It'll really tie in this morning. It is not possible for a person to see and trust in the eternal while his focus is on the temporal. Isn't that good? Let me read it again. It is not possible for a person to see and trust in the eternal while his focus is on the temporal. And so it's very, very important as Christians, we constantly focus on the eternal things and not the temporal. Because the more we focus on temporal, then we cannot trust God. We won't trust God. We'll trust in the immediate future. Now, our story tonight is about a man, and I would not necessarily say we would call him wicked, but we would definitely call him an unbeliever. He was a God follower who was not a Christ follower. All right? Now, we learned several things. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 and 17, the Bible says these words. I'm using the New King James tonight. Now, behold... One came. Now, let's pause there. Who is this person that comes? And we know from verse 22 on two accounts, in Luke chapter 18, we know three things. This one who came to Jesus was a young man. The one who came to Jesus, according to verse 22, was a rich man. And the third thing we know from Luke chapter 18 was that he was a ruler in the synagogue. So here's a man who was a good moral man, 
Alright? A good moral man. He was a young man. He had attained wealth at an early age. Okay? He had wealth. In other words, he was a good manager of stewardship. It's really what we would call American success story. Um, this is the man that we would say today, oh, look, at here's, this is what America's all about. Here's a young man. Um, he attained his wealth while he was young, and he's being a good steward of that. He's a, he's a ruler in the community. He's a ruler in the synagogue, perhaps on the Sanhedrin. You know, he, a man you probably want your daughter today, a very religious man. He would have gone to the temple regularly. He did, we know, he did his very best to maintain and watch over the rules, the, the commandments of God. He tried to keep those. And so this is the kind of man that comes to Jesus. And, and I think it's Luke that says, he fell down and worshipped him. And here's what he said to him. Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now notice the do factor there. Don't, you know, don't let the familiarity of the scripture miss these things. So here is a man who comes, he says, good teacher, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Good teacher, what good thing must I do? Now you understand that, again, every religion, say every religion. Every religion in this world factors in works. Besides the Jesus factor. I, I almost just, again, because Christianity has been so distorted, I almost hate to use the word, but we'll throw Christianity out there. With the exception of Christianity, every religion, every religion, every religion in the world works their way to God, attempts to work their way to God, and work their way to God. And that is just so incredible that, that Jesus factors in grace. Jesus factors in because recognizing we couldn't do it. There's nothing we could do. All these other religions saying, work, 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 work. And if you're lucky, and there is no luck at the end, you lose. You lose. But Christianity factors in grace and forgiveness and atonement and all those wonderful things that we are so appreciative that God has given us. But this man, coming from a Jewish background, probably a member of the Sanhedrin, says, what good things shall I do? In his mind, doing was the way to righteousness. What shall I do that I may have eternal life? And verse 17, it's, it's incredible how the inside of Jesus. So he, Jesus, said to the man, why do you call me good? Now, what he's trying to do, I think Jesus is pointing to, he seems like he's making a connection or not. Because he says this, no one is good but one, capital O, that is God. So, so, so he tells the man, listen, there's one good, and that is God alone. So you're calling me good. Are you identifying me with God? Are you recognizing the fact that the man standing before you is God in the flesh? I don't think he did. I think because, and I don't think Jesus did either because he goes right into it. But if you will enter into eternal life. I mean, perhaps there's a pause after the word, why do you call me good? There's no one good but one. Pause. Okay, no response. We'll move on then. If you, if you insist on pursuing this crazy idea of you doing to obtain righteousness, Jesus might say, then here's what you got to do. Um, if you want to enter into eternal life, keep the commandments. Now, let's pause there. Is Jesus teaching a work salvation? And the obvious answer is no. He's not teaching a work salvation. His whole purpose here is to help this man come to a recognition of who Jesus is and how he truly can obtain eternal life. So, so you might say, one, he lays out the standard. God's standard for eternal life is perfection. Perfect. Now, he, he might think God would, would grade on the curve, and he doesn't. But the perfection, if you want to try to make your way to heaven, you've got to be absolutely perfect. Now, here's the bad news. Ain't nobody. Ain't nobody. But guess what? That's how we go to heaven. Perfection. It's just not ours. It's Jesus. Come on now. 
It's Jesus. You, you know, through the eyes of, through the blood of Jesus Christ, and through the, and through the eyes of Christ, and, and because of Christ, God sees you as perfect. Do you understand that? You know, He made Him sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteous of God. God doesn't see you as some beat up old sinner. He sees you righteous because you have clothed yourself with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You have no righteousness of your own, but you have the righteousness of Christ. And that qualifies you for heaven. I want to say it one more time. There is nothing, 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 nothing you can do to earn righteousness. If you in any way want to stick righteousness into the program, you're going to lose. It's by grace, through faith only. Amen? Very, I know, I take one more Baptist, we believe that. Get it in your heart. Live like that. Live as a, live as a child of grace and not a child of the commandments. Okay, so he lays the standard down of perfection, and he also really again he wanted to intend to show the man need his need. When you know when he said Jesus said, "Well, keep the commands," and hopefully the man was going to go, "Oh wow, I've not done that. I've not done that." Jesus is probing for him to make a commitment to to understand more who Jesus is, to understand the true way to eternal life. Okay, so the man the man responds, "Well, obviously God does grade on a curve. Which ones?" Which ones? Um, how many do I have to keep to earn eternal life? See, the guy is like totally off base. He comes to Jesus saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, keep the commands. Okay, well, which ones do I have to keep? In other words, he's not got in his brain yet. He's just not good enough. Nor will he ever be good enough. So, God, right now, God doesn't grade on a curve. You've got to keep every single command, if you could, and you can't, to gain perfection. And you can't. In fact, you're born in sin. You're messed up from the get-go. Amen? Now, now here's something else, too. One of the commentaries said this. I said, hmm, that's interesting. He said to him, which ones, being a member of the Sanhedrin, most likely, you know, the Pharisees kind of did what we kind of do today. You know, God came up with the rules, and the Pharisees said, well, to help us keep these rules, we're going to come up with some more rules. And so there was like all the rules of, of, of God. And I think the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees came up with like 600 more. You, know, you had to wash your hands a certain way. Had to dry your hands a certain way. You couldn't do this. You couldn't do that. They came up with like 600 more rules. So maybe the guy was saying, okay, are you talking like God's rules? Are you talking about like God's rules and all these ones the Pharisees have come up with? Which ones are you talking about? Well, Jesus took it again as God's rules because he goes and says, well, I'm going to give you five of the nine to look at. Okay, and here's what he said. Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, and you should honor your mother or your father and your mother. And then he gives one more. It's huge. And he's done this before. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he gives the, the five of the nine. They all deal with people. And then he tags on that great commandment says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now over in uh, Matthew and chapter 22, verse 36, we read these words. Teacher, another man, teacher, um, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, so Jesus said, well, well here's, a, here's a short list. And he gives a short list and tags on this wonderfully great commandment. You've got to love God. And then second, it's like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, now there's, to man's credit and discredit, look what he says. 
In verse, toward the end of verse, uh, no, starting verse number 20. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now, it's just a little poll. How many of y'all think that the man had kept all of those from his youth? No. You know, see, he was so blind. But you know, we're, we're blind sometimes. How, how long were we blind before we finally recognized that we were a sinner? How many times, has, as a believer, has God got a hold of our hearts or tried to get a hold of our hearts? There's some unconfessed sin in our life when we ignore it, we ignore it, and finally God goes, Hello, you need to see this? Well, this man, in the, in the essence of his salvation, is so blinded. I've done this all my life. And I promise you, of course, considering what Jesus said, you know, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. If you look after a woman lust after her, you've already committed adultery. I mean, you throw in the Jesus factor when he raised the standard real high, and this guy is sinking fast. He's in deep weeds. But he says, I've done all of this already. But to his credit, he says this, but something's missing. Something's missing. What yet do I lack? And then here it is. This is so huge. Jesus said to this young man, this rich young man, this rich young man who had already established himself as a ruler, Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, if you want to meet the standard, go sell what you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then I want you to come and follow me. So I know you have prestige in the community. I know you have your whole life ahead of you. And I know you have amassed great wealth. So what I want you to do is I want you to go and sell it. But I just don't want you to sell it. I want you to give away the proceeds to help the poor. And that's going to be significant in just a moment. But not only that, I want you to abandon all your prestige in the Sanhedrin and all that you are there. And I want you to come and follow me. So what do you think he did? He walks away. He walks away. Now the question might become this. Why did Jesus ask him this? I really don't, you know, I don't think, I don't think you find in Scripture again a valid thing for all of us selling all of our stuff and wearing robes alike and chanting in a circle in Montana. I don't, I don't think you see that, okay? This is a specific request to, that, by the way, it partially applies to us, but this is a specific request to him because Jesus, again, is working in his life to help bring about salvation, which doesn't happen. Okay, I think this. I think Jesus wants to show him that he's broken the commandments. First off, he breaks number one. Because it says this, When the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowfully, and that means great distress, for he had great possessions. Okay, so Jesus said, if you want to have eternal life, you've got to sell everything, you've got to get rid of all your possessions, give it to the poor, and follow me. Okay? And when he heard that, he went away in great distress and great sorrow. Now, which was more important? Following Jesus, eternal life, or his possessions. Which thing did he worship? His possessions. What is the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other God before me. He said, dude, you're already in deep weeds. You done broke number one. The reason Jesus pointed this out was he's trying to help man to see that, dude, you've got another God in your life. And I'm going to tell you, this is true for us tonight. You need to remember this. And it's true of this man's life. It's true in every person's life. God will not share a throne. When you accept Christ, he becomes the Lord of your life. It's not a dual throne thing. And we wrestle with this. We wrestle with this because time and time again, we do what we want to do, not what God wants us to do. Can I hear an amen? We, as Christ followers, we wrestle with this. 
Lost people certainly wrestle with this. Now, the second thing is this. Isn't it unique? Now watch verse 20 again. Uh, nope, not verse 20. Hang on a second here. Here we go. Let's see. You shall love your neighbor, verse 19, as yourself. What did Jesus tell him to do? Sell you what you have. Give it to the who? The poor have treasure. The question is that. Do you love the poor? Do you love his neighbor as himself? I mean, he could have said, well, yeah, well, well, well that's very noble. I, I will sell what I have and I will give it to my neighbor that I'm supposed to love. Okay? And I'll follow Jesus. Again, what was more important? Helping the poor or, or his possessions? His possessions. So he broke number one and he broke the last one on the list. He did not love his neighbor as himself. If he loved his neighbor as himself, he said, sure, I'll give my possessions away because I love my neighbor like myself and I want to give to the poor. I want to help the poor. So on two different counts, Jesus showed him he broke the command. And the sad part is he walked away. I'm telling you, we don't understand. You know, if you want to have, you're going to laugh at this internally. You won't laugh out loud. You need to have compassion on your wealthy friends who don't know Jesus. Because if we're fixing to read, they're in a hard boat. Because the thought of total surrender to God to a person who has amassed wealth is a big deal. In fact, let's just read what Jesus said. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And why is that? Other gods. I mean, I'm telling you guys, there, there, there are two gods, really, well, three, but, but there are two gods in America that are big. One is sports. We worship the sports. Can I hear an amen? amen. I mean, the highest paid guys in America are the guys going to hit a ball or put a ball through a hoop. I mean, some of you are Kentucky fans, but some of you are crazy Kentucky fans. I mean, you watch reruns of the same game over and over again, and yes, if your finger is pierced, blue blood comes out. It's crazy how we are about sports, and we're crazy about money. By the way, we're crazy about sex, too. I'll say the S word tonight in a closed congregation. We're, we're crazy. We're crazy about wealth. We're crazy about sports. We're crazy people. And that makes it very hard for a person to enter into the kingdom. Because, again, God does not take second place. So your wealthy friends, you really need to help them. And, by the way, if you're at 20000 and your friend makes 40000 that's your wealthy friend. If you make forty and another person makes seventy-five, that's your wealthy fan. If you make a hundred and somebody else makes two hundred, that's your wealthy friends. Don't think a person's got to make two million dollars to be wealthy. All right? And those people are the more they amass, the more difficult it is to understand their need for God. Because again, with with that wealth comes the idea that, that wealth makes power, and, and you know, because I have power, I'm smart. Okay? So he says that. Now in verse 24, I have heard this rationalized away. And I'm going to go with the commentary because I think it's right. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the rationalization that I've heard preachers preach is that one of the nicknames for one of the gates in Jerusalem, it was a very low, small gate, was the eye of a needle gate. And what Jesus was saying was a camel would have to get down on his knees and crawl through the little hole to get into the kingdom. The Greek word there is for the eye of a needle. And I'm going to go with what the Greek word says, what the commentary says. And what Jesus is saying was just like it's impossible for a large camel to go through the eye of a needle, 
So it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And you go, oh my. Well, that's exactly what the disciples did. Look what happens. Verse 25. When the disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished. Now, someone tell me why they were astonished. You know what? What? Okay, okay. Judy says that they were astonished because rich people, they believe, rich people had God's favor. That if you had money, you had God's favor. Judy, where do you think they learned that from? I'll tell you. They're friends to Pharisees. God didn't say that. The Pharisees said that. The rich and... The rich and powerful told them. What did I say this morning? What did the rich and powerful say in America? You're stupid if you believe this, that, this, and that. And these gullible Jews did the exact same thing. God didn't say it, but it sounded good. It's their own form of health and wealth gospel. And so they're sitting there, and so they're saying, they're astonished saying, who then can be saved? If, if a rich man who we believe has God's favor, how are we poor people who obviously doesn't have God's favor, how in the world are we going to be saved? I'm glad you asked because Jesus gives us the answer. Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Amen. Let me say this. If God can cause a 15 or 14 or 16 year old virgin to conceive without the help of man, God can do anything. Amen. And here's what's really cool. Remember the poor rich man who it's harder to get to an eye of a needle? With God, all things are possible. I don't know if he'd shrink the camel or make the eye bigger, but when that, that, when that rich person finally comes to the realization that nothing matters but God, that I am a sinner before a holy God, that I believe Jesus died to atone for my sins, I choose to turn from my sins and follow Jesus, either A, the eye is going to get bigger or the camel is going to get smaller, but he can be saved. Now that's powerful. That's powerful. And, and now you need to let that be known to these friends that you think are somewhere up the ladder who are wrestling with, but, 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 help them know with God all things are possible. But there is no one. Listen, with man it's impossible. How many people are going to get into the kingdom without grace? That would be zero. How many people are going to get into the kingdom without Jesus' atoning blood? That would be a zero. With men it's impossible. But with God. It is all things are possible. Wretched sinners can come into the presence of God through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, Christ, through God's amazing grace, because God makes it possible. We don't make it possible. God does. Isn't that just good stuff? I just I tell you, it's incredible. It's incredible. All things are possible. Now, here's that incredible tie-in. And once again, Peter, you know, sometimes Peter, like, you know, remember the Mount of Transfiguration? And Peter falls asleep, and Jesus is up there meeting with Elijah and Moses. You have this really, really cool meeting. You know, Peter wakes up and, and you know, goes, oh, my goodness, there's Jesus, and he's glowing. And there's, well, that looks like Moses, and there's Elijah. I'm not sure I recognize them, but he figured out that's who they were. And so, so Peter wakes up and says, Jesus, should we build some booths for you guys? I mean, how inappropriate, you know? But he woke up, and the first thing out of his mouth was, let's build some tents. This time, Peter gets it right. Look what he says. So, so Peter answered. This addresses the now and later thing. Then Peter answered and said to him, Well, see, we have left all 
and followed you. In other words, what you told this guy to do, that you are to go and sell your possessions, okay, give it to the poor, and follow me, that's what we've done. We left behind the boats, we left behind the nets, we left behind you know, dad, we left behind all of that. And so he asked a good question. What, therefore, shall we have? And that's a good question because it makes us focus not on the now because, again, you've got to believe me on this. The, the disciples, their life was not easy. They had nothing. They really didn't know where the next meal was coming from. As they followed the Son of God, they didn't know. And again, believe me, the book, read the book of Acts. Their life was hard. They spent a lot of time on the run. They were hated just as Jesus predicted. So Peter is not talking about now. He's talking about later. What shall we have? And here's what Jesus says. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, and now he's not talking about now, he's not talking about, he's not going to rise from the dead and overthrow the Roman government and establish the kingdom now, but there's coming a time, he tells Peter, there's coming a time when things are going to be different. It's not now, but there's coming a time when things, hey, hey, church, not now, but there's a time coming when things are going to be different. You believe that? It, it will be. It will be. When the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He says, Peter, there's coming a time when I'm in my glory and I'm on my throne that you will have a throne and that you will help judge the twelve tribes. Now notice that's a specific promise. Those 12 men. I'm not sure about Judas. You figure out. Maybe Matthew has filled in. I don't know. You figure that part out. Okay? But he says, there's coming a time when you will rule with me, Peter. That's not now. It's in the regeneration. So, so Peter, you've got to get rid of your, your myopathy. You've got to get rid of your, your, your myopic spiritual faith here. You've got to look beyond your nose and look someday beyond the Roman government, beyond your upside down, as Christian says, crucifixion, and look today when you're going to be with me in eternity. Just look beyond but then verse 29, he gives us something beautiful. He says this. And everyone who has left houses. Uh, would that be us? Would that be us? Yeah. And everyone who has left houses. Okay, this, this is his demand. Or brothers. Or sisters. Or father. Or mother. Or wife. Or children. Or lands. For my name's sake. Now he's not talking about you getting out and running town because of your conduct. But he said, if you give these things up, now, now, now keep in mind, you know, Jesus once said, you've got to hate your father, you've got to hate your mother. You understand, and this is not changing the meaning of the word at all, that Jesus was saying that, that your love for me is to be so powerfully, now listen to me now, that your love for me is to be so powerfully pure and strong that any other love pales. That your love for your dad looks like hatred. Your love for your mama looks like hatred. Your love for your sister looks like hatred. Another scripture, great truth. So he says, you have not left these things. Because he, listen, he demands every believer. When he said, come follow me. Let me ask you a question. Can you follow and stay where you are? Then why do we do it? Why do we do it? Why are we still where we were five years ago spiritually? Why have we not changed any and all so, so often in our conduct, our actions, our attitudes? Why are, why are we supposed to be following Jesus, which means becoming more like Jesus... Why are we not changing? Because his demand is, is to leave all these things behind. And if you do that, guess what? There's going to be a reward time. 
And, he, and we know it's a reward. I'll tell you why in just a moment. He, let me just read the whole verse. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold. Can I say it one more time today, Donna? It will be worth it all. I don't know what it's all going to be like. But it will be worth it all. It is somewhere beyond your wildest imagination. That's how incredible the presence of God is going to be for all eternity. And, and, and it seems like he's talking about that, that the hundredfold is different because look what he says. And inherit eternal life. So if we are faithful, there is eternal life and there's this reward. And again, I don't know how it works. I don't know what God's uh, economy is in heaven. But I'm telling you, there's some way we can invest in heaven that it will be there when we get there. Now, I'm not talking about dollars. I'm not talking about $50 bills or $100 bills. I'm not talking about you know, cars. For goodness sake, they, they walk on gold and call it asphalt. His economy is so different. They, they take giant pearls and make gates in the new city. The foundation, you know, we use gravel for a foundation. He uses 12 precious stones. Come on. Come on. Don't, you got to get outside the box. But true, you know, Jesus taught this over and over and over again in his teachings in the Gospels. That there is a reward for those who are faithful. Somewhere beyond just going to heaven, there's a reward. And it will be worth it all. It will be worth it all. But to see that and to believe that and to practice that, we've got to look beyond. Let me read the same one more time. It is not possible for a person to see and trust in the eternal while his focus is on the temporal. We've got to see beyond. And that makes the danger Lisa faces worth it all. That, that makes our friends in Africa and China and Central Asia that are being persecuted for the faith worth it all. That's what made the early church worth it all. And you know, we heard this conference. He said it. You know, he said, we're not facing uh, severe persecution in America yet. We heard that at the North American Mission Board conference. Any gospel preaching preacher will tell you that there's coming a time of persecution in America. I'm not talking about those who might believe in the health and wealth gospel. But, but if things continue as they are, there will be times of persecution in America. But it will be worth it all. It will be worth it all. And he says one more thing, just as a closing thought, he says. But many who are first will be last. Okay, now that's now. You remember the rich guy we talked about this morning? Remember Charlie, remember the rich guy? He's first now. He's going to be last. You remember the ones seem to have it all now? Well, they're going to be last. But he says, and the last shall be first. Again, if you can get somewhere beyond gold and silver and dollar bills and think of an incredible, incredible economy of heaven, as we are faithful to God, we're going to be incredibly wealthy, in quotes, in a place called heaven. I know I hate to use that word because we think about earthly wealth, and it's not that. So it will be worth it all. Um, let me give you that last thing I, I didn't give you this morning. Um, Charles Wesley, who was the brother of John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, um, wrote over... Can you believe this? Listen, Dave, you may already know this. He wrote, he wrote 7,000 hymns. Can you believe that? 7,000 hymns. And he, he's dying, and on his dying bed, he's meditating on Psalm 73. He calls his wife in... And says, I, I know the end is near. I want you to take down what I'm fixing to say. Here was Charles Wesley's last thoughts. In age and feebleness extreme, what shall a simple worm redeem? 
Jesus, my only hope thou art, strength of my failing flesh and heart. Oh, could I catch a smile from thee and drop into eternity. His last words. Charles Wesley believed it was worth it all. And what a day, what a way to close a great day with those words, it will be worth it all. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you tonight for your incredible grace. Teach us over. Father, just worm it into our hearts where it will never come out. That the only righteousness we can ever claim is that of your Son, Jesus Christ. It is by your amazing grace that we will walk the streets of the New Jerusalem one day. That we will enter to heaven one day. And we are so eternally grateful for that wonderful, wonderful gift. Father, my prayer again for myself and for these people whom I love, as my privilege to serve as their pastor, is that, Father, we will learn to see beyond the immediate and into eternity. And may it impact the way we give, may it impact the way we serve, may it impact the way that we love one another, may impact the way that we have relationships with those who do not know Jesus Christ. May we live, Father, in such a way that those who do not know Christ will come to faith or at least have that best opportunity as you draw them to do so. So thank you for this very, very good day. And Jesus, I pray this in your precious name. Amen. I want to ask uh, you guys to stand, please, and bow your head. I'm going to ask Dave if he wants to see or play. Either one, Dave, doesn't matter. I want to be a time of meditation tonight. I think it's a good thing to close our day with. Okay? Let's just bow our heads, and I'm going to be quiet. And just think about what God's spoken through his word today. What we've experienced through worship today. And perhaps as we get ready to go out into the world tomorrow, it'd be a good time to say, okay, God, I need your help. But by the way, you do understand that all this we can't do. It's by Jesus. It's by the Holy Spirit. We can't gin it up. But, but ask God, God, help me to change my vision for tomorrow. And everything I do, help me to see eternity and not the temporal. Help me, God. I need you in this. So pray that right now. Share with God your concerns. Uh, be sure to lift Lisa up in prayer. Certainly want to do that. And I pray for our kids. Pray some things we talked about today.
Father, as we bring to a close this time together with you and with each other, may we remember to lift each other in prayer as we travel, as we journey this week. May we keep in constant focus the thought, the concept, the truth um, that you guide our steps. And as you lead us into opportunities to share our faith in Christ, may we know and may we be faithful in that. Father, we pray for the ones that are hurting and suffering, ones who are facing treatments and surgeries, all those things this week. We pray for your strength, Father, into their lives. God, thank you for every person in this room. As I was preaching and saw so many of the faces, Father, Lord, as we've built relationships over the weeks and the months and the years together, Father, I honestly say I thank you for this congregation. I love them. And I pray, Father, your richest blessings on their life this week. Father, I pray as we leave this place, um, may your blessings be upon us as we go to do your work in your kingdom this week. And Jesus, I pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys.